0: Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Grab your Bible and go with me to the book of Mark and Mark chapter number nine this morning. Mark and chapter nine. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one perhaps in the back of the seat in front of you. Maybe in the back of the seat behind you, you will find a copy of God's Word. And we would encourage you to pick up that copy and follow along with us Mark and chapter number 9 this morning. And we're going to find our scripture reading in verse number 31. Mark chapter 9 and verse 31 is where we're going to be. So find the cross at the top, the name Mark. Find the big number 9, that's the chapter And then the small number 31, that's the verse. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. We're going to read down to verse uh, number 40 here in just a moment. Mark chapter 9. As you're turning, I want you to think with me for just a moment about selfies. How many have ever taken a selfie? Let me see. Okay, you better, better watch it. We'll check your phone if you're... You're not telling the truth. Did some uh, study this week in preparation for this sermon. That there are, they estimate there will be 90 million selfies taken this year. 90 million selfies taken this year. If you have a teenager, that doesn't surprise you. In fact, that number may seem a little low. But the reality is it's a lot. 90 million selfies. So in, in, in studying for this, uh, this sermon, I kind of wandered across a website, Selfies Gone Wrong. You don't have anything better to do for about an hour and 15 minutes. You should enjoy that website this afternoon. Selfies Gone Wrong. People who take a, a, a selfie while they're committing a crime <laughs> and then post it only to have the police look them up on their social media page and then arrest them later because they indicted themselves, right? Selfies going gone wrong. If you're going to shoplift, at least don't take a picture of yourself doing it. Or, or another one, people... Uh, calling in sick to work. One fella claimed he he had a family emergency, so he couldn't go to work that day. His boss let him off of work, and then he took a picture of himself at a family birthday party. Posted it. The boss messaged him, we'll talk tomorrow in the office when you come in. Selfie's gone wrong. You don't have to spend much time on that site at all, and you'll find the, the tragic example of Somebody dying while trying to take the perfect selfie, getting too close to the edge of the cliff, trying to get it, and then falling off and dying. It's interesting. It's kind of sad. Funny, but sad. (laughs) 50 people will die this coming year trying to get the perfect selfie. It's true, actually. There will be more people who die by selfie than by shark attack this coming year. You think of how terrified you are of sharks. You should really be terrified of selfies. <laughs> All kinds of problems. All kinds of problems start when we put the camera on ourselves. All kinds of problems start when we focus on ourself. Rather than focusing on God. The people that God has given to us in our lives and others. The human heart is relentless in this way. The human heart loves to worship itself. In fact, our hearts by nature are dominated by self. You never taught your toddler to use the word ...mine. And yet... ...they mastered it. You never taught your toddler... ...how to bite their sibling... ...when their sibling took their toy. And yet they've done it. The human heart is relentless in this way. In fact, we don't have to teach our children how to be selfish... ...we have to teach our children how not to be selfish, right? You have to teach them how to share. You have to teach them how to be kind. You have to teach them how to, how to give instead of take. It's the nature of man. Then one man writes, he says, No one lacks self esteem, everyone is consumed with himself or herself. In one way or another. That's true. But what's also true is this is not new. This is the same spirit that inflicted the disciples as they walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what you're finding in in Mark chapter 9. This is the story. Look at verse 31. For Jesus taught his disciples, and he said unto them, the Son of Man. So that's, that's his title for himself. He refers to himself as the Son of Man more than he refers to himself as any other title. So the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed... He shall rise the third day. But they, the disciples, understood not that saying. And they were afraid to ask him. And he came to Capernaum. And being in the house, he asked them. He says to the disciples, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? Okay, so look here. They, they leave one place. Here's what Jesus said to them there. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of evil men. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed. And after I'm killed, I'm going to raise. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to come back to life. And then you'll see my power. And then they leave that place and they journey to another place. And as they journey... ...to the other place, the disciples trailing presumably a little behind Jesus... ...are having a conversation among themselves as Jesus is walking ahead of them. And he says, what were you arguing about as we came here? Notice verse 34, but they held their peace. They don't answer him. For by the way, or while they were going... They had disputed among themselves, notice, who should be the greatest. It's a selfie. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child he sat him in the midst of them, and he had taken him in his arms, and he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. And John answered him, saying, Master... We saw one casting out devils in thy name and he followeth not us and we forbade him because he followeth not us. And Jesus said, forbid him not. For there is no man which can do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For he that is not against us is on our part. And Jesus here is teaching us the bottom line of what it means to be a Christian, and that is humility. Humility. The virtue, listen, it's the title of the sermon. The virtue ...of being last. The virtue... ...of being... ...last. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use your word in our lives. Give us an understanding... ...of humility that is needed... ...for a relationship with you... ...for a relationship... ...with others... And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. Amen. The virtue of being last. This isn't new in the Bible. It shouldn't be new to you and your understanding of Christianity, but perhaps it is. Isaiah 66, God is looking for humble people. Micah chapter 6, Luke 14, Luke 18, even here in the gospel of Mark. Humility is what God desires, not just from others, but what God desires from even you, even me as believers. Humility is a hard lesson to learn, though, because the moment you think you've got humility, you've lost it. The moment you think you are humble, you are no longer humble. It's Like the guy who decided he'd write the Book on humility. That guy is not a humble guy, okay? If you've said to yourself, I have attained humility, I am now fully humble, well, then you're going all the way back to square one. You don't understand biblical humility. Neither do the disciples. And so the Lord is instructing the disciples on this lesson. This lesson on humility, this lesson on not focusing on yourself, but rather focusing on God. Focusing on the people that God has entrusted to you and focusing on the people around you, focusing on others. If you've been paying any attention at all in this study in the book of Mark, you'll know that when Jesus begins talking about suffering, that this is not a new idea for him. In fact, the gospel of Mark, more than any other gospel, so the gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell the story of Jesus' life. The gospels, more than any of them, Mark talks about suffering more than them all. In fact, in he, fact, he depicts Jesus in his gospel as a servant, a suffering servant to be, to be particular. Jesus is a suffering servant. He comes. Mark concentrates on Jesus' works. Mark concentrates on Jesus' miracles. What's Mark doing? He's teaching us about the service of Jesus, the, the way in which Jesus lived his life in service for you, for me particularly for God, but not just any kind of service. Listen, a suffering service. And so Jesus is giving to his disciples here, first of all, notice, an instruction on suffering. An instruction on suffering. And so we must ask this question as we read verse 31. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. We must ask, why must Jesus suffer? Why is Jesus depicted in Mark's gospel as a suffering servant? And the answer is because he must suffer in order to save. Listen, he must suffer in order to save. Walk backwards in Mark chapter 9. Look at verse number 12. Look at verse 12, and Elias verily cometh first, and he restoreth all things. And how it is written that the Son of Man, he must suffer many things and be set at naught. Jesus is saying, this is what I'm coming to do. I am coming to suffer. This is why I am here. Go back to Mark chapter number 8. Look at verse number 31. Look at verse 31, just a page over. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priest and of the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. What's he talking to them about? He's talking to them about his suffering. That he must suffer, he must be this Suffering servant, go forward to Mark chapter 10. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but look at Mark chapter number 10. Look at verse number 33, saying, Jesus is saying, behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the son of man, me, shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him and scourge him and spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. So what's he talking to them about over and over and over again? He's talking to them about his suffering. His suffering. He's given to them instruction on Suffering. Now, this is, this is helpful here. Think of this. Why is he focusing? Why is Mark and his gospel focusing so much on suffering? Well, one reason is because Mark is writing his gospel after the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has been crucified on the cross. He's been placed in the grave. He's been resurrected. He has also ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. That's where Jesus sits right now, the Bible says. Ever making intercession for us. What that means is Jesus and God right now are having a conversation. And do you know who they're talking about? They're talking about you. He's ever making intercession for us. And so Mark is writing this gospel after all of those events, but he is writing the gospel to the Christians who are at Rome. And do you know what the Christians at Rome are experiencing? Suffering. Hardship. Difficulty. Trials. And so Mark is writing this after the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he is writing this to Christians who are in that moment suffering. They're going through a hard season. They're having a hard time. They're experiencing things in their life that are difficult. They're losing their livelihoods. They're being chased from their homes. They're being dropped into gladiator arenas. They're being hunted. Hebrews chapter 11 teaches us. This is what is happening to them in that moment. And Mark is writing to them and he is saying, of course you're experiencing suffering. And do you know why you're experiencing suffering? Because the Savior that you love experienced suffering. The one who died for you suffered. Have we so soon forgotten his words that if they would do this, if they would crucify the master, then how will they treat the servant? You and I experience suffering in our lives. You you and I have difficulties that we face. It shouldn't surprise us that we face hardships as Christians. It shouldn't surprise us that we face difficulties in our lives. It shouldn't be a shock that marriage is difficult or that life is hard. It shouldn't come as a surprise. Do you not know that in this world you shall suffer tribulation? Do you not know that it will be difficult in this world? You say, well, pastor, why is it that way? Well, why is it that we have difficulty in our world? And the answer is very simple. Here's the answer. And the answer is the same for every one of us. The answer is sin. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Sin, when it entered into the world, broke the world that we live in. Death was not a part of God's plan. The wages of sin, the payment of sin, the cost of sin, the consequence of sin is death. Death was not a part of God's plan for you and for me. And some people go, well, why are there earthquakes and why are there tornadoes and, and why are there tsunamis and hurricanes? Why is there cancer? Why is there sickness? Why, why, why is there devastation across a, uh, the, the, the landscape? Why is relationship difficult? Why do people fight? Why is there anger? Why is there lust? Why is there contention? Why are there wars? And the answer from the scripture is because of sin. Sin broke the world that we lived in. So what will we do with our sin? What will you do with your sin? Surely you've lived long enough, you're wise enough to know that you have sinned. The Bible says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not a person in this room that has not sinned. In fact, there's only one person who ever lived who was without sin and his name was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And you know what they did to him? They crucified him. They nailed him to a cross. They placed him in a grave. And then three days later, he rose from the grave. And do you know why he did that? Do you know why he suffered? He suffered on the cross for your sin and for mine. He took your sin on himself, the Bible says. He was rich, he became poor, he was strong, he became weak, he was righteous, but he bore in his body, the Apostle Paul says, he bore in his body our sin. He was without sin and yet he became sin for us so that we who have sinned might be made the righteousness of God through him. Have you considered why is it that Jesus has suffered? The disciples here, they hear the instruction. There's a suffering, but, but listen closely. The instruction on suffering that Jesus gives, the disciples don't get it. And I'm going to tell you this. They don't get it because they don't want to get it. You listen closely. They do not get it because they do not want to get it. So they're beginning now to put the picture together. And they're saying, wait a second. If if, if he's going up to Jerusalem, if he's going to be killed, if he is going to be crucified, well then, well then what's going to happen to us? So they hear the instruction on suffering. And they understand enough that they don't want to understand anymore. And if we were honest this morning, we know exactly what that feels like in our own individual lives. When when the disciples heard the things that Jesus said, they didn't like the things that they heard. So they didn't want to understand anymore. Look at the text. Jesus says in verse 31, the son of man is delivered into the hands of men. They shall kill him. After he is killed, he shall rise again the third day. Look at verse 32. But they understood not that saying, look at verse 32. They understood not that saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Don't, don't, don't miss that back part of that verse. They didn't understand it because they didn't want to understand it. They were afraid to ask. It's true, in our lives, we're tempted to do the same thing. We can go to the scriptures. We can search the scriptures. We can read the scriptures. And at the same time, we can pay very little attention to the hard teachings and the hard commandments that we find in the scriptures from God for us. Most people, I just want you to know this. Most people approach the Bible this way. They know enough verses to justify the choices that they have made. Be aware... Even the devil in the Bible, even he quotes scripture. Every every false prophet, every false teacher knows one verse or another. They use it, they use it out of context, they twist the meaning. They use it to justify their own sinful actions and behaviors. But understand this they understand enough that they don't want to understand anymore. And I'm asking you this morning, do you know enough about Jesus that you just don't want to understand anymore? So you will acknowledge this morning that Jesus was born in the manger. You'll celebrate Christmas. You'll even sing Christmas carols. But have you pushed that understanding farther? Have you said, yeah, but why did God become man? Why did he have to do that? God had to become man because man had no way to get to God. We could not get to him. And so what did he do? He came to us. Do you know enough about Jesus? Yeah, he died on the cross. You'll celebrate Easter. You'll celebrate the resurrection. You'll do your religious duty on those days. You know enough about it, but have you asked the question why? Why did he die? If if, if you don't push the question any farther, you're in the same position that the disciples are in. Jesus gives them the instruction on suffering, and they don't get it. And the reason they don't get it is because they don't want to get it. And Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect sinless life, which you have tried to do and I have tried to do, but we have failed miserably at doing. And then Jesus was crucified on the cross. And Jesus was crucified on the cross in our place. It's the great exchange, Luther says. And then they buried him in the grave. And three days later, he rose from the grave, verifying, validating, proving who he is. He was seen of 500 witnesses at one time. And then he ascended up into heaven. Jesus died for you and for me to give us a way to God. He's a suffering servant and the reason Jesus suffered is so that you don't have to. The answer is found in one verse. It's probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible. It's John chapter 3, verse number 16. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You say, why would Jesus come to this earth, live his life, die that death? Why would God do that? And the answer, my friend, is because he loves you. God loves you. And in order to make the love of God yours, the Bible says you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus provides to his disciples an instruction. They don't get it. It's an instruction on suffering. But notice this, the second thought here. It's it's an instruction on suffering, but it's a discussion about status. That's really what happens in verse number 33 and verse number 34. So while they journey to Capernaum, They're walking, presumably, somewhat behind Jesus, having this this conversation, this argument about who is going to be the greatest. In verse 33, what was it, Jesus says, what was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way, on the journey, on the trip? What were you talking about? Now, you need to know, Jesus isn't asking this question because he wants the information. Jesus knows what they were talking about. And perhaps... It was those that were left behind. You remember three went up into the mountain of transfiguration. They saw the glory of God on Jesus. Maybe it was those who were left behind who started the conversation because they were, they were perhaps jealous. Well, yeah, you got to go to the mountain, but, 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 but I'll be the one sitting by Jesus in the, in the kingdom. Perhaps it was the three who were taken up who started the conversation. Maybe they said something like, well, I bet you wish you were as special as us and you got the private viewing at the top of the mountain. That's that. They were buttoning their clothes when they did that. That's what that, was. that was an illustration of that. I don't know who started the conversation, but either way, it's a terrible, it's a terrible conversation to be having. You say, why? Why is it a terrible conversation to be having? Because think of the context. Jesus has shown them at the top of the mountain his glory, his greatness. God has said, listen to him. They've come down the mountain. They healed the boy who was possessed of demons. They went their way now on their trip. Jesus has instructed them, I am going to suffer. And all they care about is status. All, all they care about is who is sitting where when we get to the kingdom. Who, who gets the VIP status? Well, well, if, well if, he, if he's got a kingdom and he's going to the kingdom, well, then obviously I would be the one who's the closest. The tragedy here is we see we see ourselves in this kind of conversation, don't we? Pride rears its ugly head all the time. Even even in the context of the church, even in the context of religiousness. These people are religious in the text. They're the disciples of Jesus. They will be the apostles. All of us have this sinful drive for greatness that is not from God. God. We want people to like us. We want people to think well of us. We want people to serve us. We want people to wait on us. We want people to know how big of a deal we are. There's a great little test here. Take the test. It's six questions. It's been a while since some of you have taken a test, so I'm giving you one right now. It's it's, it's just multiple choice. It's A or B. It's yes or no, okay? Okay. It's the pride test. Let's take it. Do not answer out loud and do not answer for your neighbor. Question one. Does it matter to me if I get recognition for a job well done? Question two. Do I seek credit for what others have done? Question three, do titles pump me up? This is a big thing in church movements. Honorary doctorates. Okay, just so you know, an honorary doctorate is not a doctorate. Thinking of giving myself an honorary doctorate. Walking around talking to people, I'm oh, Dr. Delaney. Nice to meet you. <laughs> oh, doctor of what? Oh, nothing. <laughs> doctor of being awesome. <laughs> Clearly, gotta have your name on the door. Gotta have the titles. Got gotta have people know who you are. I will. Is, is your popularity and approval, is approval crucial to your sense of self-worth? You've got to have people approving of you. Are you, a, are you a name dropper? Are you a name dropper? Always talking about the people you know or at least the people you pretend to know. Do I think that I have something valuable to say about everything? If you have something to say about everything, you probably don't know anything. It's the pride test. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Because we, we become so intoxicated with our sense of, of importance. We become so intoxicated with with our sense, with our understanding of the way it should be. Jeremiah the prophet says, seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Seek them not. It's heartbreaking because the whole story here in Mark 9, the whole story happens at the moment where the Lord is telling them about his impending death He's telling them about his service for them and for the world. He's telling them about his sacrifice on the cross. He's telling them how he is going to make a way for them to get to God. And at that moment, they're arguing about who is greater than who. At that moment, they're focusing on themselves. So he says to them, what were you discussing in the way? And they kept silent, the Bible says. They're silent because they're embarrassed. They're silent because they're ashamed. make a note of this. Anytime you and I operate with pride in our lives, pride always destroys unity. There's unity among the 12 and now there isn't. There's contention going back and forth between them. Only by pride cometh contention, Solomon said. Only by pride comes contention. Listen, only, only, only by pride comes contention. And so while the Lord Jesus is speaking of his own humiliation on the cross, the disciples are only focused on their exaltation. So Jesus asks them, what were you talking about? Not because he wants the information, but he wants the opportunity to instruct them. Look at it, verse 35. They were were discussing who would be the greatest. Verse 35, and he sat down and he called the 12 and he says unto them, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last. If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last. And so watch this. Jesus takes their understanding. Jesus takes their values. Jesus takes the things that they think. And even in our day, the things that we think are so important. And he turns it upside down. He he turns it on its head. And here's what he says. You think greatness is about how many people serve you. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you greatness is understood in how many people you serve. Not in how many people serve you, and how many people you are serving. He inverts it. And he gives an illustration. That's the third point, the illustration. The illustration of service. So the instruction on suffering, a discussion that the disciples have about status, we want to be the greatest. Third, an illustration on service. So he says in verse 35, And he sat down, he called the twelve, and he saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. He took a child, he set him in the midst of them, he'd taken him up in his arms, and he says to them, whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. So it's an illustration that they can't miss. This is a hard lesson, isn't it? It's an instruction on suffering that they don't get. It's a discussion about status that they shouldn't be having, and but they are. It's an illustration on service that they can't miss. You ever been with a group and they've taken a group photo? How many have ever been a part of a group photo before? Let me see. Raise your hand. Okay, good. And then they send that photo out to everybody in the office or everybody in the group. You know what most people do as soon as they receive the group photo? They look at themselves. We just did family photos not that long ago, a few months, a few weeks ago now. Got all the photos back, every photo, zooming in, ah, oh, my eyes are closed. I always close my eyes in the photos, I'm the worst, I'm the worst with that, not photogenic at all. Always look like I'm a little high, and I'm not, I promise. It's medical, don't worry. <laughs> so Zoom in. Oh, I look terrible in that one. No, they can't use that photo. A man goes, I want to use this one. Oh, look, the kids look good in this photo. The, the babies are smiling in this photo. Uh, uh, Gabe and Ethan look good in this photo. And I'm like, you can't use that photo. She said, why? Everybody looks great in this photo. No, 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 no. Look how I look in that photo. I don't like myself in that photo. You get a photo, you immediately look at yourself. How many, how many of you have social media? Let's see, you have a social media account in some way, okay. Some of you just lied, you didn't raise your hand. And I know you have it. How many photos on your social media are about you? Just in case, you're wonder, just in case your followers forgot what you looked like. How many, how many photos on your phone are of you? We do this all the time. We do it with the most amazing places, don't we? Oh, look at this beautiful waterfall out in nature. It's powerful, it's majestic. You know what would make it better? My face right in front of it. (laughs) We we, we even tag it, beautiful waterfall. Like well, we can't see it, your big ugly mug is in the way. (laughs) You're not ugly. I don't don't send me an email about how you're not ugly. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's important here. Watch. It's important here to understand that Jesus doesn't repudiate greatness. Jesus doesn't say, Don't seek greatness. Here's what Jesus says: Be great at what matters to God It's very important you understand that. He doesn't say don't be great. But be great at what matters to God. He takes greatness and he turns it upside down and he brings this nameless this 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 this, this completely this this completely unknown child. He brings him up, he holds him in his arms. So the kid is what? Three, four, he's small enough to be held by Jesus in his hands. He brings him up, he he holds him, he says, look look at this child. Look at him. He has nothing to offer the disciples. He has no no greatness in their mind. He has no wealth, he has no independence, he has has nothing to offer, he doesn't have a job, he doesn't contribute in any way. He is is useless in their minds. In, In their way of thinking, this boy isn't any good until he can get a job and he can get to work and he can contribute and he has value and he has significance and people know who he is and Jesus brings this little child and goes no 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 no. you see your understanding of greatness wouldn't receive one of these and if you won't receive a child and my father won't receive you But if you receive the child, notice, in my name, you not only receive me, but you receive him that sent me. It's an illustration on service that they cannot miss, and neither can you, and neither can I. I'm asking you this morning, are you seeking greatness in the areas that matter to God? Are you seeking greatness in the areas that matter, not just for here and now, but in the areas that matter for all of eternity. He turns it upside down. True greatness is dying to yourself. True greatness is serving others. True greatness is caring for the people who are not cared for. True greatness is receiving someone who has absolutely nothing that they can give back to you. And yet you receive them anyway. It's loving the unloving that the way up, the Bible says, is down. The way to greatness is humility. It's easy to love the lovely. Have you noticed that? It's easy to like the likable. It's hard to love the unlovely. It's hard to like the unlikable. But in our understanding of the way the world is supposed to work, we love those who love us. We serve those who can serve us. We give to those who can give something back to us. And Jesus comes to the disciples. was no different for them. And he turns it upside down. And he says, you've got your camera focused on you. And your camera should be focused on him. Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. But you better first seek his kingdom. You seek your own kingdom and you can lose it by the end of the day today. Don't answer the question out loud, but answer it quietly. What do you have in your life that you can't lose by the end of the day today? Think of it. What, what do you have in your life that you could, you can't lose by the end of the day today? Amanda and I, I think we have a great relationship, but sin can enter into relationships. Sin has entered into relationships, marital relationships that were stronger than Amanda in my relationship. As sin could enter into a relationship that would cause Amanda and I not to be able to be together. What do you have that you can't lose by the end of the day today? You can lose Relationships. You can lose a relationship because of sin. You can can lose your wealth in a heartbeat. You, You can lose your health. The old ticker could just stop ticking. You can lose it all by the end of the day. You can lose your mind. You can lose it all by the end of the day today. You think long enough, think hard enough, and you'll think of somebody who fits into every one of those categories. You can lose it all by the end of the day today. But you know what you won't lose? If you know Jesus as your savior, you won't lose your name in his book. It is forever settled in heaven, O Lord. You can take it all from me, but you can't take him from me. You see? So Jesus says you should seek that. You should seek first the kingdom, and everything else is added to you. i got to hurry. Give me this last one. It's an application of sympathy. I'll just show it to you quickly, and then we'll let you you get out of here. Look at verse 38. So John says, John's starting to feel uncomfortable. So John says, well, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. Somebody was doing it different than we did it. That's what he just said. Look here, church, this is important. Look, church, look, 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 look. If I see the top of your head, you're not looking, look. Somebody did it different. So we told him to stop it. He was casting out devils in thy name and he followeth not us and we forbade him because he followeth not us. And Jesus said, good job, guys, way to go. Is that what your Bible says? If your Bible says that, you got the wrong one, okay? He says, Forbid him not. For there is no man which can do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. So here's what he says. Watch, look. He says, Forbid him not. Because it'll be proven over time the evidence will reveal itself, whether he's doing that in my name, or whether he's doing that in someone else's name, whether he's doing that in his own name, whether that's of God, or whether it's not of God, over time it'll prove itself to be it'll it'll prove itself to be of God or not of God, because no man can do a miracle in my name if he's speaking lightly of me. It won't last. That's what he's saying. Look here, he's saying it won't last, and it's not your place, and it's not my place to go around to be the person who's making sure everybody's doing what we think they ought to be doing. He says, "Forbid him not," verse forty. For he that is not against us is on our part. Matthew records that a little differently. Matthew says, for he that is not against us, for us. He that is not against us is on our part. It's interesting, isn't it? Pride creates exclusivity. Pride creates exclusivity. We have no idea what the man was doing, we have no idea how long he was doing it. We have no idea if the man was part of the 70. If you'll think back earlier in our study of Marks, Jesus sends out 70 who can do miracles, who preach in Jesus's name. We have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us who the man is. But here's what happens. When pride enters into the equation, when the camera is on ourselves, then we become exclusive. You've got to be a part of our club or nobody else can do it. It's exactly what the disciples were thinking. And Jesus makes it clear. He who is not against us is for us. Now watch, here's the encouragement in all of this. The encouragement is this. Are you starting to notice that the disciples are really good at saying the wrong thing at the wrong time? How many of you noticed that already about the disciples? And here they are again, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And here's, what, here's the encouragement. Jesus doesn't go, you know what, guys? I'm tired of this. You guys don't listen. You're like talking to a wall. I'm telling you over and over the same thing, and you just refuse to get it. I'm telling you about how I'm going to be crucified for the sins of all the world and you're talking among yourselves about which one of you is greatest. Jesus doesn't go, never in my life have I met a miserable bunch like you. He doesn't do that. He says, I know It's a very difficult thing in the human heart to put to death self. But in order for you to put to death self, you need a constant reminder of grace. You cannot be arrogant and stand at the foot of the cross at the same time. You cannot be arrogant and stand at the foot of the cross at the same time. The story of the Bible is not the story of how man has made his attempt to become acceptable to God. The story of the Bible is the story of God willingly and humbly coming down and taking the place of man and providing a way for man to get to God. And that way is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith in the one who served us. Through faith in the one who suffered for us. And through faith in the one who rose for us. It's an application in sympathy. It's an illustration in service. It's a discussion about status. And it's an instruction on suffering. I wonder, where's your camera focused this morning? Where's your camera focused?